Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall such as never been in Egypt from, this, from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock out in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, We ask this evening that you would teach us from your word, that you would teach us of your power, teach us of your glory, teach us of your mercy and grace. Help us, O Lord, to see who you are from your word, 
This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. You may have heard the phrase, a question really. We may have even dealt with it as we've been going through the book of Exodus. There is a conundrum that comes up often, and that is, why do bad things happen to good people? We wonder why, if we are doing the right things, if we're following the Lord, why do bad things happen to people who do good? And it is a difficult question. It's something that stretches our way of thinking, and it can cause us to be confused. But I think there's something even more confusing than that. What's more confusing is the question, why do good things happen to bad people? You see... We can expect that bad things will happen to good people just from our knowledge of sin in the world. And we realize that this world is not perfect and that we are subject to circumstances that are hard. But it is very difficult to understand why good things happen to bad people. Why people who are evil and wicked and sinners get a reprieve. Why they are not punished for what they've done. And in a nutshell, that's a bit of our conundrum with looking at this story in the first part of Exodus. We wonder what God is doing with Pharaoh. Why does God just not punish Pharaoh already? Why ten plagues? God's certainly powerful enough in one plague to wipe Pharaoh off the face of the earth. God tells us he has that power in our text this evening. Why does God allow Pharaoh to not only exist, but to continue to rule Egypt throughout these plagues? Well, I think this text helps to provide us with an answer. It's an answer that I think we can see in summary form, even in the children's catechism. I remember many years ago, before my children were getting married and going off to college and driving, we used to talk about the children's catechism. And the wonderful thing about the children's catechism is when you asked your children the first question, they were easily able to answer it. Who made you? And they would shout out, God! And then you would say, question number two, what else did God make? All things! But it's the third question I want to focus on. Why did God make you and all things? And of course the answer is, for his own glory. And I think that's the answer to our question of why sometimes good things happen to bad people. It's because God wants his glory to be seen. And in this incident of the seventh plague, we are going to see God glorified in the midst of Pharaoh's rebellion. That God is exalted. And Pharaoh is humbled. We see God glorified in several things in our text this evening. First, we will see that God is glorified in his purpose. Second, we will see that God is glorified in his mercy. Third, we will see that God is glorified in the punishment that he meets out. And then finally, we will see that God is glorified even in Pharaoh's confession at the end chapter 9. God glorified in his purpose, in his mercy, in punishment, and even in Pharaoh's confession. Let's begin then by looking at verse 13 through verse 17 to see how God is glorified in his purpose. Now, God has a purpose in what he's doing, and we see it in several aspects in our text. 
First, we see that God is glorified in His purpose for Moses. And His purpose for Moses is very simple. It's obedience. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. And so God's purpose here for Moses is his obedience. Can you imagine being Moses? You've now brought six plagues on Pharaoh in Egypt. And God comes to you and he says, now you need to go to Pharaoh again. Now, Moses may have complained that he didn't have a mouth that was good for speaking. He may have even been a a bit quick-tempered, as we saw earlier in this book, where he murdered an Egyptian. But I have to tell you, Moses has far more patience than I would have. I would be tempted to say, really, Lord? We've done this six times already. Why am I going again? Do we really think we're going to get a different answer? But that's not what Moses does. What Moses does is he perseveres in what is right and good. And even though the plagues have not worked yet, God still tells Moses to go, and he goes. Now, it's interesting that he uses the same formula that he has used before. You may have remembered that last week we saw that the plagues tend to come in cycles of three, in accelerating damage and in a shortness of announcement to Pharaoh. Typically, the first of the cycle comes and Pharaoh is told, if you don't repent, this will come to you. And then on the second plague in the cycle, it's just announced that the plague is coming. And then in the third plague, it just shows up. Pharaoh doesn't even know it's coming upon him. So now we have a new cycle of three, the third cycle. And so what we also see here is that God's purpose for Moses is not just a bare obedience, but it is an obedience in which God supports Moses. God emphasizes to him that he will uphold him. God emphasizes this distinction. You may remember in chapter 9, verse 11, that the magicians could not stand before Moses. But Moses can go and stand before Pharaoh, who considers himself a god. How can Moses do that? It's because God upholds him. And so the message that God tells Moses to bring to Pharaoh is very direct. We've seen this over and over again. Moses' message is not sugar-coated. It's not lightened. It's very direct. And here there is not even an if, as we saw earlier in chapter 8, verse 21. Now Moses comes and he just once again announces that a plague will come the next day. God's purpose for Moses is his obedience. But God also has a purpose, not just for Moses, but for the plagues themselves. And we see this in verses 14 and 15. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So these plagues are specifically set against Pharaoh's heart. There's a very interesting thing going on in the Hebrew text. What we have is a translation of you yourself. In the Hebrew is actually your heart. It comes 
at the innermost being of Pharaoh. But of course, we know that Pharaoh's heart is all the problem here. It's Pharaoh's heart that has been hardened. It's Pharaoh's hard heart that prevents him from obeying God and letting Israel go. And so what God tells us is his purpose for his plagues is to come against Pharaoh's hard heart. Even in this, God is foreshadowing that great tenth plague that will come. Because that is the the plague that will most affect Pharaoh's heart. The the plague that kills the firstborn. That strikes Pharaoh where he is nearest and dearest. So what God says is, I will send all my plagues on you and yourself. And this all here is not referring to all in number. Because of course we've seen these plagues... They are what we call seriatim. They come one after the other after the other. They don't all come at once on Pharaoh. But what God means here when he says, all my plagues, is that the full force of his plagues, of his justice, is coming on Pharaoh. God is not pulling any punches. We need to remember here that this is not an even battle between God and Pharaoh. God is not afraid of Pharaoh. He doesn't need to ramp up the plagues in order to defeat Pharaoh as if somehow lesser plagues are not able to do the job. No, God's purpose in his plagues and bringing them over and over again and in increasing their violence is to show his glory. The purpose of these plagues, God tells us, is to show his glory. That's interesting to us because we would have expected God to say in verse 14, I will send all my plagues on you so that you will free my people. So that my people will be free. So that my people will be blessed. So that my people will no longer be under your thumb. But that's not what God says. You see, it's difficult for us, but the main thing that God is doing here is not freeing Israel. The main thing that God is doing is declaring his glory in all the earth. Israel's freedom is a means to that end. And so what we see here is the heavens unleashed. There is a ratcheting up of the plagues and it shows God's power over all of creation as this thunder and fire and hail comes forth. There is no explanation for this. You see, in the earlier plagues, there might have been an explanation that some could have fooled themselves with. We see this even with modern so-called commentators. They will say, well, you know, there was a problem in the river of Egypt. And the river went bad, and so it looked like there was blood. And because the river went bad, then that means that frogs all came out of the river. And that's where the frogs came from. And because the frogs were everywhere, and they're dirty, that's where the flies came from. And so on and so on. But here we have a complete break. There is no natural explanation for the heavens opening up, and fire and hail that kills man and beast alike, from falling just on a portion of Egypt. There's no explanation at all. You see, God wants Pharaoh to know that there is none like him in all the earth. Pharaoh's view of God is that he is a provincial Hebrew deity. No different than he, 
Pharaoh is an Egyptian deity. But God is telling him that his glory will not be shared with another. That he is God over all the earth. God also has a purpose for Pharaoh himself. And we see this in verses 15 through 17. He says, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power. You see, God lets Pharaoh in on a secret. He could have wiped him out. He's showing his power in Pharaoh's survival. You see, Pharaoh's survival has nothing to do with a lack of power on God's part. Or a lack of guilt on Pharaoh's part. No, God has said that he has caused Pharaoh to stand. That's literally what the text says. He has established Pharaoh for this purpose. That God's name would be declared in all the earth. Now I want you to just stop and think about one aspect of this. In the future of the book of Exodus, we will see the people of Israel come to the Red Sea. And God will part the Red Sea, and the Israelites will cross, and the Egyptians will be destroyed. And that incident goes throughout the known world. In Canaan, everyone knows what God did in parting the Red Sea and in defeating Pharaoh. But I want you to think about another aspect of this. Pharaoh was not only wiped out. History has forgotten Pharaoh. Who is this Pharaoh? Do you know? Because we don't. Commentators have guesses, but no one knows for sure which Pharaoh this is. And that's not a coincidence. God has wiped out Pharaoh's name. Pharaoh thought he was so powerful that he would live forever in fame. But it's God's name that goes forward. It's God's glory that is found throughout the earth. Pharaoh is a footnote in history. He is a forgotten man. And so what God is doing here in his purposes is glorifying himself by humbling Pharaoh. There are are some interesting plays on words in our text this evening. We might even call them puns. And so... For example, God says he could have struck Pharaoh and his people with pestilence. Now, I don't know how much you know about the Hebrew language, but let me just give you a little bit of information that I think helps make the point. Hebrew is odd in that in the main it only has consonants. Imagine if you were writing English and you used B and C and S and T, but you didn't use A and E and I and O and U. Later on, Hebrew texts were edited to make them easier to read by using dots next to consonants to indicate vowels. Now, why is this important? Because the word for pestilence and the word for word are almost exactly the same. They have the exact same three consonants. The only thing that's different are the vowels. And so there's a play on words here. You see... Pharaoh is struck by pestilence, 
He's really being struck by the Word of God. He doesn't obey the Word of God, and so he's struck by pestilence. If we were to try and attempt a similar English pun, we may say, because Pharaoh did not obey God's Word, he suffered a wound. You see, Pharaoh is under the judgment of God's Word. God is glorified in his purpose. But God is also glorified, we see, in verses 18 through 21, in his mercy. Now, it's very interesting what happens here. In verse 18, God tells Pharaoh exactly the time that this plague will come. About this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall. But then he does something even further. He gives an odd warning. He says, now therefore, get your livestock and your people and bring them out of the field. Because if you leave them in the field, they're going to be destroyed. Now, that doesn't make, I think, a lot of sense to us. Could you imagine, if we can go back sometime to the first war in Iraq. Could you imagine George Bush, H.W. Bush, calling up Saddam Hussein and saying, by the way, tomorrow we're going to send a missile against this building. So you better make sure you're not in that building, because if you're in the building, you're going to get hit by the missile. That's like not how war works, right? You try to surprise the enemy. You don't warn the enemy of exactly what you're trying to do, and you certainly don't tell the enemy what they can do in order to be safe. But that's exactly what Paul does, or excuse me, what God does. Now, he gives this warning to Pharaoh. It's a merciful warning. Now, notice that this hail that will come is very heavy hail. Again, we wouldn't expect hail to be described this way. If you've ever experienced hail and you describe it to someone, how do you describe it? You describe it by size, don't you? It was about as big as peas, or as big as a golf ball, or as big as a baseball. That's how you describe hail. You don't say it was light hail, or it was medium heavy hail, or it was very heavy hail. No one talks about hail like that. Why does God describe it here? Well, I think God is pointing back to something that we've seen over and over again in the text. How is Pharaoh's heart described? You remember that it's described as being hardened, but being hardened in Hebrew is to be heavy. It's to be weighty. It's to weigh down the soul. So God is drawing, I think, an analogy here, a comparison here. He's giving a merciful warning to Pharaoh and giving him every opportunity to obey. And so there is even a mercy in what God commands Pharaoh to do. Again, in verse 19, he gives Pharaoh a warning and he says, Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field out of the field. And again, it's an interesting way that God says this. He says, Now therefore send. Where have we seen that word before? Well, it's the word that God keeps using, telling Moses... That he is supposed to tell Pharaoh to send the people of Israel out. To let the people of Israel go. It's the same word. God is reminding Pharaoh that all of this trouble comes because he's not sending. Because he's not letting go. And so he says to him, why don't you get with the program? Why don't you send? 
If you don't send, you're going to see the consequences of not sending. God is giving Pharaoh proper advice. There is a mercy in what God is doing. And there is a mercy even in how God directs the heart. We see this in verses 20 and 21. Those who feared the word of the Lord got his slaves and livestock out of the field. And those who did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And what happens as a result of that? Well, there is a difference made. And again, the language here, I think, in our text is instructive. Normally, in Hebrew, what you have is a verb at the beginning of a sentence followed by subjects. But here we see something a little bit different. We see the subjects first and the verb later on in the sentence. Because what is being done in our text is the emphasis is being laid on the two different subjects. Describing two different types of people who make an action. Those who feared the word of the Lord and those who didn't pay attention to the word of the Lord. God is making a distinction. There is a difference here. Those who fear the word of the Lord obey. God is glorified in his purpose. God is glorified in his mercy. And God is also glorified in the punishment that he brings. We see this in verses 21 through 26. As the hail is described, and it is an awesome Description, the hail comes down with fire and lightning, such as had never been seen before since Egypt had been a nation. Now, this is a deserved punishment. It's very clear in our text, right? Because the hail comes upon those who ignore the merciful warning of God. God has not brought this by a surprise. He tells them in advance what is coming. He tells them why it's coming. He tells them how they can avoid this punishment that's coming. And they say, no, we don't think it's going to happen. Now, we sit here and we look at this and we say, respectfully, Egyptians, dummies, have you not seen the six plagues that have come? Weren't the frogs all over your house enough? You had the, fl- the flies. You had the stinging locusts. You had the boils. Why do you not understand what's going on here? But you see, if we think about our own day, and our own society, and our own neighbors, we'll begin to understand a bit more about the human heart. Because God has warned mankind for thousands of years about the wrath to come. He's given emblems of his wrath. He's told them the way to escape the wrath. He's told them that there's only one way to escape the wrath that is coming. You need to get out of the field. You need to come under the protection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't do that, you will be lost. And you know what most people in our society say? Nah. I don't think it's going to happen. I'm not worried about it. You see, we ought to view that the same way that we view this foolishness of the Egyptians. They should know better. We should know better today. We've seen God carry out his wrath in small measures throughout history. What makes us think that God will not keep his word now? 
You see, God had given an opportunity to obey his word. And he gave that opportunity to everyone, not just to Pharaoh. And those who did not set their heart on the word of the Lord, then heard the voices of the Lord, so to speak. That's what thunder is described as in the Old Testament. It is the voice of the Lord. It is thunder. And if you've ever heard loud thunder, you've heard how jarring and disconcerting it can be, right? We make up all sorts of analogies for thunder for small children because they are scared when they hear those loud booming sounds. And we say things like, oh, that's just bowling in heaven. Or don't worry about that. That's not a noise to be worried about. You're safe. It's something that puts us on our edge. This punishment is clearly deserved and it is a declarative punishment. That is that God declares who he is and his power to the world through this. Look at verse 24. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it had been a nation. This Punishment goes beyond this day. In the history of redemption, as Moses passes on to glory, and as Joshua takes on the mantle of leadership, and as he brings Israel into the promised land, and as they are outside Jericho, the Israelite spies are told in Joshua chapter 2 that the people of Jericho know what God did in Egypt. That's why they're afraid. Because they know all about the plagues that God has brought on Egypt. They know that God is not one to be trifled with. You see, God's glory and His name is declared throughout all the earth, even as God has said. This isn't confined to Pharaoh. It's not confined to Egypt. It's about God's glory being declared. And this punishment is also distinctive. We see this again in verses 25 and 26. Once again, Goshen is exempted because of God's choice. This hail and thunder and fire lands everywhere, but where the people of God are. God is making a distinction between his people and Egypt. This is no random weather event. This is not that the meteorologist of Egypt got on the equivalent of their television and said there's only a 5% chance of hail in Goshen, but there's an 80% chance of hail by the Nile. No. There is, we might even picture in our mind's eye, a sharp dividing line that one foot out of the land of Goshen, fire and hail and death reign. And one step into the land of Goshen, the sun is shining and the safety is known. Because God puts a difference between his people and the world. The final thing that we see in our text this evening is that God is not only glorified in his purpose, he's not only glorified in the way that he declares mercy, he's not only glorified in the punishment that he brings upon the unrepentant, he is glorified actually in Pharaoh's confession. Now this may seem odd to us because Pharaoh's confession is not exactly something that has permanence. We see in verse 27 that Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and he makes what we might consider a very good confession of sin. I've sinned. My people have sinned. You are in the right, Moses. 
The Lord is in the right. And in verse 28, he even uses the covenant name of God. He says, plead with the Lord, Yahweh. That's why it's written capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Now, we might know that Moses understands how things work with Pharaoh. That he's experienced. After all, this is his seventh plague. And so he says, yes, I will go out and I will stretch out my hands and the thunder and the hail will will be no more. But he looks right at Pharaoh and he says, but as for you and your servants, I know you don't fear the Lord. And we may just chalk that up to Moses understanding Pharaoh's heart. Understanding that he's not going to do this. Now, what Pharaoh has done is he has acknowledged his sin. He has said he will send out the people of Israel. He's even asked for prayer. But then very quickly, he backtracks. For as soon as Pharaoh saw, in verse 34, that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Now, what we might think is that Pharaoh is a cold, calculating politician. That he knows, if he just says the right words, that Moses will get rid of the hail, and then he'll backtrack. We see this all the time in politicians, don't we? They say things all the time that they have no intention of doing. And the reason they do it is because they want to get a reaction out of us. I actually don't think that's what's going on here. And to help me, Calvin agrees with me. Or I should say, I agree with Calvin. Calvin says that Pharaoh did not lie by design, but rather he tried to appease God. And then when God was appeased, he just simply fell back into his former state. That's actually more frightening. To think that someone could design repentance... And then, when things ease up, they just simply fall away from it. Pharaoh's not even trying to trick Moses and God. He's just following his heart. I think I've told you this before. Ladies, when Hallmark tells you to follow your heart, you look at the screen and you yell, Liar! You don't follow your heart, ever. Because the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Pharaoh is following his heart here. His heart tells him, everything's all right now. I can go back to being who I am. And we see this with others throughout the Bible. This is exactly what Saul does over and over again, isn't it? How he supposedly repents with David, and then as soon as the situation changes, he falls right back into a former pattern. And so Moses sees this. Now what does this mean? And how is God glorified in Pharaoh's supposed confession? God is glorified because only God can bring true confession. This is proof that mankind, no matter how badly he wants to, or how big the stakes are, the entire kingdom of Egypt, he cannot bring about his own confession and repentance. 
he will always fall back on a heart that is hard and wicked. The only way someone can truly confess and repent is if it comes from the Lord. God is glorified in every true and real repentance because it only comes from the Lord. So why is God continuing this series of plagues? Just three brief observations to conclude. The first thing we need to understand is that God does all things for a reason. Nothing happens by happen chance with God. And that applies in your life and in mine. Now often we don't know or we can't see what the reason is. But be assured that everything that comes into your life, both what is good and what is not so good, comes from the hand of God. And it comes with a reason and a purpose. The other thing that we can learn from this, from Pharaoh, is not to presume upon God's patience. That's really what Pharaoh's doing in plague after plague. He just assumes that God's patience is infinite. That there'll always be another plague and he can repent again and then there'll be another plague. He doesn't need to change who he is. He doesn't need to follow the Lord or really obey his word. He thinks that there will never be a reckoning. Now we know that's not true. That's going to come upon him. And then I think the final thing that we can learn from Moses is that when God is on our side, we can be bold no matter what it seems that the circumstances dictate. Because God is in control. Because if you remember, what God is doing and working through us is not primarily about us. It's about God and His glory. And God will never sell His own glory short. God will not abandon His glory. He will not share it with another. And so, no matter what the circumstances seem like, we can know and count on God winning the victory. Because God will always glorify Himself. Let's pray.